Chapter 2 One of my teenage heroes was Harry Crosby. He was a poet from the 1920s, and frankly, his poetry sucked. But his lifestyle was legendary. The nephew and godson of J.P. Morgan, he hobnobbed with Ernest Hemingway and D.H. Lawrence, was the first person to publish parts of Joyce's Ulysses, and became a decadent symbol of the lost generation. He lived a fast, opium-enhanced life, and swore he would be dead by the age of 30. When he was 22, he married Polly Peabody, the inventor of the strapless bra, and persuaded her to change her name to Caress. For their honeymoon, they locked themselves in a bedroom in Paris with stacks of books and just read. At the age of 31, when he realized that his lifestyle hadn't killed him yet, Crosby shot himself. I didn't have a caress to lock up with me, but I shut myself in the house for a week, Harry Crosby style, reading books, listening to tapes, watching videos, and studying the seduction posts in Mystery's Lounge. I immersed myself in seduction theory. I needed to shed Neil Strauss and rewire myself to become style. I wanted to live up to Mystery and Sin's faith in me. To do so, I'd have to change not just the things I said to women, but the way I acted around them. I needed to become confident, to become interesting, to become decisive, to become graceful, to become the alpha male I was never raised to be. I had a lot of lost time to make up for, and six weeks to do it in. I bought books on body language, flirting, and sexual technique. I read anthologies of women's sexual fantasies, like Nancy Friday's Secret Garden, in order to internalize the idea that women actually want sex as much as, if not more than, men. They just don't want to be pressured, lied to, or made to feel like a slut. I ordered books on marketing, like David Cialdini's Seminal Influence, from which I learned several key principles that guide the majority of people's decisions. The most important of these is social proof which is the notion that if everyone is doing something, then it must be good. So, if you're in a bar with a beautiful female friend on your arm, a pivot, as they call it in the community, it's much easier to meet women than if you're hanging out alone. I watched the videos Grimble had given me and took notes on each, memorizing affirmations and patterns. There is a difference between a line and a pattern. A line is basically any prepared comment made to a woman. A pattern is a more elaborate script, specifically designed to arouse her. Men and women think and respond differently. Show a man the cover of Playboy and he's ready to go. In fact, show him a pitted avocado and he's ready to go. Women, according to the speed seducers, aren't persuaded as easily by direct images and talk. They respond better to metaphor and suggestion. It wasn't enough, though, for me just to study Ross Jeffries. A lot of his ideas are simply applications of neurolinguistic programming. So I went to the source and bought books by Richard Bandler and John Grinder, two University of California professors who developed and popularized this fringe school of hypnopsychology in the 1970s. After NLP, it was time to learn some of Mystery's tricks. I spent $150 at magic stores buying videos and books on levitation, metal bending, and mind reading. I'd learned from mystery that one of the most important things to do with an attractive woman was to demonstrate value. In other words, 
What makes me any different from the last 20 guys who approached her? Well, if I can bend her fork by looking at it, or guess her name before even speaking to her, that's a little different. To further demonstrate value, I bought books on handwriting analysis, rune reading, and tarot cards. After all, everyone's favorite subject is himself. I took notes on everything I studied, developing routines and stories to test in the field. I neglected my work, my friends, and my family. I was on an 18-hour-a-day mission. When I finally crammed as much information in my brain as it could hold, I started working on body language. I signed up for lessons in swing and salsa dancing. I rented Rebel Without a Cause and A Streetcar Named Desire to practice the looks and poses of James Dean and Marlon Brando. I studied Pierce Brosnan in the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair, Brad Pitt in Meet Joe Black, Mickey Rourke in Wild Orchid, Jack Nicholson in The Witches of Eastwick, and Tom Cruise in Top Gun. I looked at every aspect of my physical behavior. Were my arms swinging when I walked? Did they bow out a little, as if trying to get around massive pectorals? Did I walk with a confident swagger? Could I stick my chest out further, hold my head up higher, swing my legs out wider, as if they were trying to get around massive genitalia? After correcting what I could on my own, I signed up for a course on Alexander Technique to improve my posture and rid myself of the round-shouldered curse I'd inherited from my father's side of the family. And because no one ever understands a word I say, my voice is too fast, quiet, and mumbly. I started taking weekly private lessons in speech and singing. I wore stylish jackets with bright shirts and accessorized as much as I could. I bought rings, a necklace, and fake piercings. I experimented with cowboy hats, feather boas, light-up necklaces, and even sunglasses at night to see which received the most attention from women. In my heart, I knew most of these gaudy accoutrements were tacky, but Mystery's peacock theory worked. When I wore at least one item that stood out, women who were interested in meeting me had an easy way to start a conversation. I went out with Grimble, Two-Timer, and Ross Jeffries nearly every night, and chunk by chunk learned a new way to interact. Women are sick of generic guys asking the same generic questions. So where are you from? What do you do for work? With our patterns, gimmicks, and routines, we were barroom heroes, saving the female of the species from certain ennui. Not all women appreciated our efforts, of course. Though I was never hit, yelled at, or doused with a drink in a club, stories of spectacular failures circled constantly in the back of my mind. There was the story of Little Big Dick, a sergeant from Alaska, who was sitting at a table talking to a girl when her boyfriend came up behind him, yanked him out of his seat, threw him to the ground, and kicked him in the head for two minutes straight, fracturing his left eye socket and leaving boot marks on his face. But they were the exceptions, I hoped. These beatdowns were foremost in my mind as I drove my car to Westwood, home to UCLA, for my first attempt at sergeant during the daytime. Despite the cheat sheet of my favorite openers and routines in the back pocket of my jeans, I was petrified as I roamed the streets, trying to select someone for my first approach. As I walked past an office depot, I saw a woman with brown glasses and short blonde hair that danced on her shoulders. She was thin with smooth, gentle curves, jeans that were just tight enough, and a beautiful complexion 
like burned butter. She looked like the undiscovered treasure of the campus. She walked into the store, and I decided to move on. But then I saw her again through the window. She looked like a cool intellectual whose inner bombshell hadn't blossomed yet. Someone I could talk with about Tarkovsky movies, and then take to a monster truck rally. Maybe this would be my caress. I knew that if I didn't approach her, I'd chastise myself afterward and feel like a failure. So I decided to attempt my first daytime pickup. Besides, I told myself, she probably wasn't that good-looking up close anyway. I walked into the store and found her in an aisle looking at mailing envelopes. Hey, maybe you can help me settle a debate I'm having, I told her. As I recited the Maury Povich opener, I noticed that she was even more beautiful at close range. I had stumbled across a genuine 10, and I had to follow protocol and neg her. I know this is wrong to say, I blurted, but I grew up on Bugs Bunny cartoons as a child, and you have the most adorable Bugs Bunny overbite. I was worried I'd gone too far. I'd made the neg up on the spot and was probably about to get slapped, but she actually grinned. After all those years of braces, my mom's going to be mad, she replied. She was flirting back with me. I performed the ESP routine, and fortunately, she picked seven. She was amazed. I asked her what she did for work, and she said she was a model and hosted a show on TNN. The longer we talked, the more she seemed to enjoy the conversation. But as I noticed the material working, I became nervous. I couldn't believe that a woman who looked like this was into me. Everyone in Office Depot was staring at us. I couldn't go on. I'm late for an appointment, I told her. My hands were shaking from nerves. But what steps can we take to continue this conversation? This was Mystery's number close routine. A pickup artist never gives a girl his phone number because she might not call. A PUA, or pickup artist, must make a woman comfortable enough to give him her number. He must also avoid asking for it directly because she could always say no, and instead he must lead her to suggest the idea herself. I could give you my number, she offered. She wrote down her name, followed by her number and her email address. I couldn't believe it. I don't go out much, though, she warned as an afterthought. Maybe she was already having regrets. When I returned home, I pulled the scrap of paper out of my pocket and placed it in front of the computer. Since she was supposedly a model, I wanted to look for a picture of her online. She had only given me her first name, Daylene, but fortunately her email address contained her last name, Curtis. I typed the words into Google, and nearly a 100,000 results came up. I had just number-closed the reigning playmate of the year.